We're going to continue on in chapter 4 today, and we're going to be talking a little bit about how Peter's background makes him particularly qualified to speak to the issue of having the courage to represent your culture when your culture is in conflict with the culture that you are surrounded by. Remember, the Christian believers, and particularly the Jewish Christian believers, were maintaining a culture that was at times antithetical to the culture that surrounded them, the Roman Greek culture. And that presented issues. How are we supposed to live when those around us and the culture that surrounds us are not our own? We represent the kingdom of heaven. That's the country we belong to. So join me as we continue our foray into 1 Peter and we look at chapter 4 and Peter has some very interesting things to say here. Have a blessed day. Greetings and salutations in the name of the Lord. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page, where you get to see me think and hear me think with my mouth open. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, context. We already know that Peter's talking to uh, Jewish slash Christian believers in Asia Minor and that they are uh, a culture within a culture. And the surrounding culture is not necessarily favorable to them as a uh, and and to their culture. And there's some issues with that. And he's telling them about how they should live within a culture that doesn't like them. And he's reminding them that their citizenship is from another country, that being heaven. So, but I'm going to go further back in context to that. A prequel to 1 Peter. Now, this little picture up here that you see is uh, an artist's depiction of Peter in the courtyard while Jesus is being um, questioned prior to his crucifixion. And he's denying Jesus. He ends up denying Jesus three times over the course of the early morning before the rooster crows. And after he was done with that, uh, he just goes into hiding. And he doesn't show up again in the narrative until after Jesus is resurrected. And then shortly thereafter that, he he goes to, back to fishing. And now just imagine how he must have felt. The horror and the shame at the depth and breadth of his rejection of Jesus when he was part of the inner three. Peter, James, and John were part of the inner circle of Jesus. And Judas betrayed Jesus, but so did Peter in a way. So just imagine the shame he felt. Then after he's out fishing, Jesus shows up on the beach, invites him back to the beach. Of course, Peter now is with Jesus. 
And when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. There's a lot wrapped up in that phrase, all things. Jesus, you know my heart. You know my shame. You know my heart. How I denied you and turned my back on you in your moment of greatest need. You know all things. And you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I count this as Peter's conversion. Because prior to this, he was... He, he he struck me as someone who was uh, he was a faithful follower of Christ, but a bit of a rock star because Jesus was a bit of a rock star, and there's 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 something to be said about being around someone who's very influential, and uh, I'm 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 trying to. I'm trying to avoid the trap of painting Peter in a wrong way, but Jesus was a rock star. He was always successful in out-arguing and out-debating the greatest religious minds of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. He... uh, was healing the sick. He was making the blind men to see, the lame to walk. He was healing lepers, even raised people from the dead. It was was something to be around him. But when the chips were down and Peter had a chance to stand with his rabbi, He chickened out. He was a coward. And he denied Christ three times. Jesus comes back after the resurrection and that's with this conversation we just read. After this conversation, Peter is never the same. He preaches boldly. He stands for Christ. He's whipped. He's beaten. And eventually he's even crucified upside down by the Roman government. And when Peter's writing this letter to the people in Asia Minor, the Christians in Asia Minor, it's not long before he himself is going to be executed by Nero. So that's what makes 1 Peter so important to me is that this is one of the last communications from Peter And you get to see how his life is transformed from just being a groupie, which is what I would have called him, to being a full-on leader in the early church, an apostle in every sense of the word, powerful, outspoken, courageous. When they went to crucify him, he told them to crucify him upside down because he was not worthy of being crucified in the same way his Lord was. 
That's what the legend says. So this Simon Peter, the former coward, is now an evangelist and an apostle of great stature and courage. He capitulated to the culture of the world that was around him when he was in that courtyard and denying Christ. He gave in to the culture around him. So he is particularly qualified to address this issue when he tells them that they are exiles. They're diaspora. They're a culture within a culture. And he says, you are to represent the culture of your heavenly kingdom of which you are a citizen. Even if it brings about persecution from the culture that you're living within now. That's kind of where Peter's at. So let's look at chapter four. Therefore, I've got to say this. An old preacher used to say, whenever you see the word therefore, you got to look and see what it's there for. The word therefore means he's linking this, what he's about to say, to something that happened previously. Something he said previously. And this following thought is linked to chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in body, but made alive in the spirit. Therefore, since Christ suffered unjustly, since Christ suffered in his body, that is, suffered unjustly for doing good, arm yourselves with that same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body, that is, Whoever is suffering unjustly for doing good is or proves he is done with sin. And I have this thought, you never meet the devil when you're going his way. Here's what Peter's saying. Whoever is suffering because they are representing the culture of their heavenly kingdom, whoever's suffering unjustly for doing good, and he's talked about that in chapter 3, proves that he's done with sin. In other words, you have turned your back on the culture that surrounds you. You're no longer a part of it. And you're living, at times, contrary to the culture surrounding you. He proves he's done with sin. And there is going to be suffering involved when the two cultures collide. So what do I mean by the statement, you never meet the devil when you're going his way? Well, When you're living like the world around you, the world has no conflict with you. There's no reason for the world to pick a fight with you. You're living life their way. But the minute you make the turn and you begin to realize, like Peter did, and live according to the culture of the kingdom that you're a part of, heaven, then you will be in conflict with the culture around you. And eventually, you will suffer unjustly, yes. But you're going to be banging head on into the devil in his ways when you start living according to the heavenly culture that you're part of. As a result, as a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. The older I get, the more I realize the 
importance of the values of the kingdom of God. And how I'm and the older I get, the more I realize how seditious and how uh, ugly are the values of the culture that surround me. And the longer I live, the more I want to divorce myself from the values of the world around me and align myself even more closely with the values of the kingdom that I represent, that I come from, that I'm up, that I'm attached to. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. I want more and more to love my neighbor as myself. Now, all that sounds wonderful and good, but if you're truly living those things out, you will find yourself in conflict with the world around you. Why? Because the lifestyle of the world around you will be in conflict with the lifestyle that you embrace. It's going to happen. Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean condoning what your neighbor does. Too many of us mistake loving your neighbor as yourself as just turning a blind eye to what's going on in their lives and the sin that surrounds you. It Loving your neighbor as yourself is meeting their needs, yes. Uh, like uh, if they need food, you feed them. If they clo- if you clothe them, they need clothing. You clothe them if you're if you're able to to the amount of your ability. Um, you meet their physical needs, much like the Samaritan did to the Jewish person who was ambushed on that road in the story of the Good Samaritan. He put him up in a hotel, paid for his medication and his medical care, and made sure that his needs were met. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't mean you condone or do not speak out about the values of the world around you. For too many years, I kept quiet when asked about what I thought about this thing or that thing or the other thing because I didn't want to offend. Truth is, I don't like conflict. I will avoid conflict. But the older I get, the more I realize that I'm actually in conflict with the world. The world does not see what I see, does not know what I know, has not experienced what I've experienced concerning the kingdom of God. My kingdom that I'm a part of is different than the culture I'm around and the culture that surrounds me. So I'm more and more concerned about following the will of God than I am about following the will of the world around me. He says, you spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. They're surprised that you don't join them in reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. There was a lot of that in that culture back then. And Christians would not participate. For instance, many Christians I know don't participate in Halloween as a holiday. And the reason for doing so is because they feel it glorifies uh, something other than God kind of with them on that. And some of them are ridiculed because of that, because of that archaic uh, attitude. But, Peter says, they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. God will judge 
in time. God judges all. And for this reason, what reason? Well, God is going to judge us all. For that reason, because God's going to judge us all, the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. Now, this doesn't mean the gospel was preached to dead people. It'd be kind of dumb. It's not preached to them after they're dead, but preached to them when they were living. They are now dead. Because God is going to judge the living and the dead, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, who have already passed away, so that they might be judged according to human standards by the culture surrounding them as a result of their godly living in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. There is a coming judgment when the judge of all will judge all. And it will be at that time that those who have turned their back on him will be judged accordingly. There will be a time when those of us who are living and walking with him, who are part of the redeemed, will also be judged. But our judgment will consist of our bowing our knee to the one who saved us and trusting him to do what he said he would do, to redeem us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. There are going to be two sentences uttered on Judgment Day to those who fought him, who, in essence, declared war on God's kingdom. He will say, Depart from me, you wicked, to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I never knew you. And then he's going to turn to another group of people and he's going to say, Enter now into the joy of your Lord. I live to hear those words. There's coming a time when God will judge everything. And what we do now has something to do with that in the sense that if we do not bow our knee to him, if we do not demonstrate, and I'm not saying you demonstrate your love for God in order to be saved, but I will say that if you're saved, there should be a behavioral thing that takes place afterwards. Remember when I said Peter, I felt Peter was like a groupie because Jesus was kind of a rock star? There are many people who attend church and the big popular churches many times because, well, it's kind of cool to be associated with a church that big. And I'm sure that the pastors of these, what we would call mega churches, would just shudder and cringe at some of the reasons that people are choosing to attend church there. It's good for business. It's good for my reputation. And it's kind of cool to be associated with a church that has uh, huge worship services and uh, giant conventions and things of that nature. Um, 
But what would happen to those people, do you think, if the government were all of a sudden to rescind tax-exempt status for our churches? And many of these big churches could not afford the staff and the buildings uh, and the properties that they are now managing because they would no longer be considered a nonprofit and they would be taxed accordingly. How many of those huge churches would shutter their doors, chain the doors shut, and go away? What would happen to those people then? Well, I'll tell you what I think. Those who are true believers will find a way to worship. And they will worship anyway, in spite of the fact that the culture around them has shut the doors on their churches, in essence trying to shut down the church. They'll find a way to worship anyway. And many people who went to church because it was cool won't go to church anymore because it's not cool anymore. When I was in Russia, one of the pastors of a church that had helped um, sponsor our trip there to work in uh, uh, orphanages and to hold Christian music concerts, I found out that the local government was getting ready to kick them out of their church building. They were going to lose their church building. And I asked him, what's going to happen next? He says, we'll have church. I says, what if there's no place to meet? He says, there's the woods. We'll have church in the woods if we need to. I said, it's almost winter. It gets 20 below zero here. What if somebody wants to get baptized? He, he says, well, there's the river. I said, but it's going to be winter. He said, they want to be saved. There's the river. And he pointed to the woods and there's the church. An amazing, an amazing response that totally put me in my place. And made me think that maybe I was putting too much emphasis on the physical attributes of the buildings we meet in and our properties. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. While we have an opportunity to do so, I think we should do so. But what happens when the surrounding culture starts to bear down on the Christian culture and starts to clamp down and take away freedoms and to persecute? That's when we find out, are you Peter the groupie? Or are you Peter the evangelist, the apostle, the man of God, who says that when you suffer unjustly for doing good, it's a good thing. Because he who suffers unjustly for doing good proves he is done with the sinful life that he'd been living. That's where Peter's going. And that's the context of this. Every now and then I have these, those moments when I say something, say something really, 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 really smart. Um, and it's like I'm having an out-of-body experience where I hear myself saying something really smart and I'm thinking, I hope somebody's taking notes because that's really good. I was talking with a music student of mine and the discussion was, Mr. Garwood, you're really good at what you do. Thank you. Why aren't you out playing? You know, why aren't you out doing concerts and shows and things of that nature? I'm good enough to do that. I told him that God never opened those doors for me. And I'm okay with that. He said, well, why? I said, because at the end of the day, and this is what I said, 
I would rather be anonymous to man and known by God than to die one day hearing the world chant my name only to wake up and hear God say, Page who? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye wicked. That is the motto of my life. My son put it this way. Once he told me, you know, 50 years after you're gone, Dad, hardly anybody will ever know you lived. And he said that in the context of me being a little bit of a whiner saying, I really wish I'd done more with my music. He said, why? It's more important that you live faithfully to God. 50 years after you're gone, nobody on this planet will ever know you lived. (laughs) Hard words, but good words. One last thought. And this refers to the overall context of Peter and John and, and Paul that we've talked about. Every one of them has been emphasizing really one main point. If you're truly a believer, you'll change how you live. John says, you're going to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and all that that entails. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. They'll look at you and say, look at him. He's a follower of God. They're followers of God. Look how they love one another. Love sets you apart from the rest of the world. Paul would say, be ready to preach. Be ready to teach. Know the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Don't be timid. Don't be afraid to proclaim the gospel. This is how you think. A Christian should be ready to speak the truth of God. That's what he was telling Timothy. Now, Peter's saying, you should live in such a way that your culture is represented in the midst of a culture that doesn't like you. They're all of them saying the same thing. Change the way you live. A Christian, a believer, will act differently than they used to. And they will make changes. I think sometimes for so long, myself, uh, I was hesitant to say, to tell people to change the way they live because I, I didn't want a smack of legalism, making up rules and regulations. But the truth of the matter is, if you really believe in something, you'll live according to that. Um... When my son uh, was in college, he met a girl, fell in love with her. Beautiful young lady. And there was a discussion. They had a disagreement. And she broke it off. He came home and he was crushed beyond measure. And he realized that the reason that she'd broken off was something he had done and said. And he made up his mind to change how he acted and how he spoke. And he did everything in his power to win her back. And he did. And they became married later. And they've given us three wonderful grandchildren. But when my son was faced with the sin of his mouth and his attitude, and it wasn't that he did anything spectacularly evil, But it was something that she just would not deal with. And she had made up her mind, I'm not going to deal with that. He changed. 
He changed what the way he acted. He changed the way he lived. Why? Because he loved her. And he would move heaven and earth to win her heart back. And he did. If you are truly in love with God, you'll move heaven and earth to change the way you act. You will live differently. I'm convinced Matt would not be married to his wife today if he had not changed. And he would have missed out on the greatest blessing of his earthly life because she's an amazing woman. If you call yourself a believer, you should change. You should change the way you live. And the truth of the matter is, Matt proved his love to his the woman who would become his wife. He changed the way he acted and walked and talked in order to ensure their relationship would stay intact. That's a great picture of what Peter and Paul and John have talked about. If you really love God, you'll change the way you live. And you will, you will represent the kingdom and the culture of the kingdom that you are a part of in the midst of a kingdom and a culture that does not like you very much. Isn't that amazing? We're being called to change our lives. I'd rather be anonymous to man and known by God than to die one day and hear the world chant my name only to wake up and hear God say, Paige who? I never knew you. Those would be the most frightening words that I will ever have heard. So Peter's telling them, change the way you live. Represent the kingdom from which you are from and the culture from which you are from, realizing that it might very well incur the wrath of the culture you're living in. But the rewards... You're going to be judged someday. And those who persecuted you will hear the words, depart from me, you wicked, to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you will hear, enter now into the joy of thy Lord. Good stuff. All right, well, that is it, ladles and jelly spoons. Good stuff today. We're going to finish up, maybe finish up chapter four tomorrow. I will see you in the AM. It's my coffee. I'm Mr. G. And I'm out of here.